Church. Do you promise to support Jeff and Jenny through your prayers, teaching, and practical help as they bring up Eleanor in the training and instruction of the Lord Jesus Christ? Okay, so with that then, I'll take Eleanor. That's okay, here we go. Eleanor Marie Ferguson, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And let us pray. May the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory in Jesus Christ, establish, strengthen, and settle you, Eleanor, in the faith. And may the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be upon you and remain with you always. Amen. Amen. There's Eleanor. <laughs> okay, thank you. Thank you. Okay, we'll be praying for you in just a moment, Jeff and Jenny and Eleanor. Um, but I do have some news in the life of the church. Um, for dates this week and this month, we have our men's breakfast. That's this Saturday, 7.30 a.m. here at the church building. It's our monthly time where the men get together for breakfast and study. Um, we also have in the ne this coming Sunday, next Sunday, a hymn sing. This is a, a monthly thing, gathering of people who want to learn more about um, hymns and practice them and have fellowship together over, over them. So hymn sing this Sunday, 4 p.m. Not today, this coming Sunday, 4 p.m. here at the church building. A couple other things. Um, sports camp. Sports camp. Um, this is something that we do in the summer with the kids. It's in June, and registration is open. Please see Marina. Marina, raise your hand. Marina, raise your hand if you have more questions. Otherwise, you'll get the information in the church email. The dates for sports camp, June 26th to June 30th. Also, next month, in the month of March, we're hoping to have a special series, a seminar series on sexuality and homosexuality. And so um, there's a lot of confusion in the church, and so we want to try to recover or learn um, the doctrine of creation and then see how it applies to homosexuality. So we're hoping to do this in place of life groups, and we think, we're thinking of doing it on a Tuesday night because there are two Tuesday night life groups. Most of the folks in church are, 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 are involved in Tuesday night, so that was the most uh, convenient time, we thought. And so we're thinking of Tuesday, March 14th, 21st, and 28th here at the church building, um, 7.30 to 9 p.m. We're not going to have dinner. We'll have some desserts and refreshments, but an hour and a half, um, three, three sessions. And hopefully you'll be able to come out to that and adjust your schedules if you don't belong to a Tuesday Night Life group. And if you have more questions, come see me. Lastly, we, we were scheduled to have a monthly church lunch. And... Um, uh, the food is coming in. The only problem is, is that the water is not coming in. And that is in the, in the restrooms, we have no water. And so for public safety reasons, we should not be holding a big gathering together. And so lunch is going to be canceled. Sorry to tell you all that. Um, but because the food's coming in, we're thinking if you want to stick around, you could um, grab a plate and eat, uh, or you could grab a bunch of food and go to someone's house if someone's willing to open up their homes 
and um, have a, a social gathering together. But yeah, the, we have all this food, we just don't have a place to uh, be able to really partake of it. So it'll be informal after the service when the food comes, it'll be distributed, or you could just hang around, maybe even stand outside if you're willing to embrace the cold. But unfortunately, lunch is canceled. Okay, now with that, we're going to spend some time in prayer, and then we'll take up the collection. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you so much for who you are and for what you have done for us in Jesus, how he is our risen and ascended King of kings and Lord of lords. And we come before you, O God, now, pledging our allegiance to our King, to Jesus, giving up our hearts and our lives, wanting to live for him, trust him, and serve him. We do pray that we would be able to embrace our identity as people who belong to the new covenant, the new covenant community, where we are all recipients of grace, where all of us, we come together, we gather because we're all on equal footing, clinging to the cross. We need you and we need salvation and we need your word of truth to help guide our lives. We need your Holy Spirit to empower us to live well for you. We want to pray for how you work in the world and through, even through disasters, Lord. So we pray for the earthquake and the, the victims and the people who are struggling in Turkey and Syria right now. We know that this is all under your control. And as devastating as it is, Lord, we pray for mercy. We pray for mercy for the people and the government there. And we also recognize that this world has been subjected to frustration. It is groaning. It remains under judgment because of sin and death and the devil. And so we pray and we cry out, not with futility, but with longing. And with great longing that we would look forward to that future time when there would be no more earthquake or disaster or death. And we look to what's going on in the world and we're reminded not to just look upon it with sadness, but to repent for ourselves. Because we are indeed living in a fallen world. And you call us to repent when we see calamities, recognizing that we still need you, O oh God. We're still subject to the fall. And we seek your help. We seek your protection. We seek your power. So may we recognize our, our own sin, and may we repent and come before you humbly. We also want to thank you for the way that you have placed us in this country with a stable government. And we want to remember that all of this that we have, the blessings that we have in this life, and that it is more than just man's ingenuity or ability to self-govern but it's all out of your grace and your kindness to us, your common grace, and so we thank you. Help us to be able to live for you, be the church here in this place. We want to pray for Eleanor Ferguson and her baptism. We thank you that she can, recognize, she can be recognized as someone who belongs to the Covenant Church community. We see your design of creation and how you've created the family to be the place where she would learn so much about you. And so we do pray for Jeff and Jenny that you would grow them so that 
they can grow Eleanor in faith. And we do pray that Eleanor would indeed come to know who you are as Lord and Savior Jesus, that she would bow the knee, submit herself to you, and be, be able to be called an adopted daughter of Christ. We thank you for the way that you work in the church community, and we particularly want to remember Kim and Ben and their daughter Willow. We thank you for Willow's recovery from the ICU. One week she's in intensive care, the next week she's walking home. We thank you so much for the power of healing and for the way that you have cared for Ben and Kim. We do pray that Kim would recognize this as your grace and kindness and that it would grow her in her faith so that she could raise uh, Willow and Sienna in faith as well. We thank you that we have this church building and even though we can have our lunch as we planned, we know all of this is according to your goodwill. So we pray that you would somehow work in us through this word to grow us to be a fellowshipping new covenant community. Have, give us the vision to be able to see what that looks like and to be it, to see it and to be it. We pray that we, all this would happen so that you would be glorified, Lord Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Time for the collection. Okay, our second Bible reading is from Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. I'll be reading the whole chapter. Page 10, if you're looking on in the church Bibles, Genesis 15, starting at verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said, so shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And as he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these 
cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is the word of the Lord. An interesting passage. Let's pray for God's help to understand it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word to us. We do believe it comes from you, and it's a word that we need to hear. And so we pray that this word would indeed be helpful for us who daily struggle by faith. We're struggling in our faith, and we need to know that your word is true and real and powerful. And may that happen through this word and by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you know, we've been going through a sermon series on what is the church. And so far, we've said that the church is the body of the ascended King Jesus. Okay, He's really living and breathing. And just as we are really living and breathing, when we're together in the name of Christ, we are really spiritually connected to one another, and we are representing Christ's body, his presence here on earth as the church. Now, if that's the case, then the question is, what is Christ like? See, we need to know what he's like so that we can represent him um, accurately and rightly. And so we're going to be considering what are five characteristic marks of how God has ministered to his people throughout Israel's history and how it all pointed to and led to Jesus. Okay? If you're looking in the sermon outlines there, there's a diagram for you to show you the big picture. We're going to be looking at five marks. This week, we'll be looking at a foundational theme running throughout the Bible. It's called the covenant, the theme of the covenant, okay? That's the first of the five marks. Um, do you want to learn who God who really is? Would you like to know how to read the Bible do you want to learn how good the good news of the gospel of Jesus is? Do you want to be amazed by grace and assured of your salvation? And if that weren't all, do you want to know what it means to be a real community, the church? It all has to do with the covenant. Does that sound kind of important then? Yes. And we're going to learn about the covenant by way of two questions. First, what's the difference between a promise and a covenant? And then secondly, are God's promises conditional or unconditional? Okay? The main point, the, whole, um, the big purpose of today is to talk about covenant to get us to become familiar with the idea of the covenant, and that's our first heading, covenant more than a promise. What's the difference 
between a covenant and a promise. Because there is a lot of overlap in meaning, and we use them interchangeably, let us see from the Bible what the difference is. We're looking at the first actual covenant-making ceremony, Genesis 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Okay? See, God realizes that Abram is antsy because he has no child. He's childless. What is that all about? Well, you have to go back to the promises that God gave Abram. Back in Genesis chapter 12. Genesis, ver verse, Genesis 12, verse 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and, your, and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay? You see that God promised Abram land and nation and worldwide blessing and protection. These promises would be the start of the story of Israel. That's what God was going to do for Abram. What was Abram's part in this relationship? Verse 4. Going back to Genesis, 14, Genesis 15, verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said, So shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord. And the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. Okay? What did Abram have to do? He had to believe God, believe that God would come through on his promises of land, of nationhood, and blessing. And when Abram's asked to believe God, it's not just, yeah, I believe, or yeah, I believe like the earth's circumference is 25,000 miles, but I'm never going to walk it, so what, right? There's that kind of belief. But the kind of belief that um, God called for in Abraham was belief that you acted upon. Abraham has done so. He has left his family, his inheritance, his security for this new promised land. He's risked so much. But this child thing, that's not happening. Not a lick of morning sickness in Sarah, Right? So how is he going to be the father of many nations as God has promised him? But Abram believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And at the same time, we see him struggling, wavering in his faith. So what does God do to help Abram with his doubts? Genesis 15, verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. What is all that about? Well, God is... Um, establishing a covenant ceremony with Abram. The word covenant in Hebrew, it means to cut. So you cut a covenant. It's 
like these animals being cut in half, but also what's the sign of the covenant of God's people, Old Testament Israel? It was circumcision, where you cut the foreskin. And what's going on in this ancient ceremony is that two parties would come together and they would agree upon the terms that were promised, the obligations that each, part, each party would pl play, and then they would walk through these cut pieces. This was the ancient world's way of like swearing that if either side broke the covenant obligations, then what they passed through is what would happen to them. Okay? The point was that if you failed to keep the covenant obligations, then you would end up dead. It was a graphic scene of blood and guts to convey the seriousness of violating the covenant. Now, this is what was supposed to happen, but Abram, he gets really bored, or something happens where he falls asleep. He falls into a deep sleep before he could really take part in the ceremony, and then God declares what would come to pass. Verse 13, then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Okay? We get a very quick glimpse of the future of Abraham's descendants. There's not going to be just one son or two. Well, there's going to be a whole people, a nation, four generations. And they will come back to this land. You see that? They're going to come back to this land. There's going to be people and there's going to, they're going to be in this place. God is going to do what he promised. And then it happens, the ceremony. Verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Now, Abram's asleep, so he doesn't pass through the cut pieces. The only thing that goes through those pieces is this smoking fire pot and flaming torch, whatever that really was. And what that was, the images of fire and smoke, it signified God, God's presence. And so in this ceremony, God goes through the pieces, but Abram doesn't. This would be super significant because what all that meant was, was that God was saying, I'm going to keep my part of the covenant obligations, the promises that I made to Abram, and if I fail to come, go, come through on those promises, I will die. But with Abram falling asleep and not going through the pieces, what God was saying was, I am going to take on Abram's obligations as well to get him to believe and to obey. And if Abram does not believe and obey, then if he fails the covenant obligations, then Abraham wouldn't be killed, but I will be killed. God would bear the consequences for Abram's failure. That's what Abram falling asleep and not being able to go through the pieces signifies. In other words, God is saying, if I fail my part, I'm going to die. But if Abram fails his part, I'm going to die, not he, he's going to die. This is super significant. 
I don't know if you know who R.C. Sproul is. He's a theologian who has passed, but um, sometimes he would go to conferences and he'd be asked, what's your favorite life verse? Now, he thinks that's an odd question to ask, but so what he does is he gives an odd answer. He says, Genesis 15, 17. And then people say, okay. They go home, they look up Genesis 15, 17, and they're like, what? What is that? What does Genesis 15, 17 say? When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. <laughs> and the people are like, what's going on there? What does that mean? Of course, if you knew what it meant, then you would understand why it was his favorite life verse. There was no greater assurance for the believer based on what we're learning from this covenant. Because God's going to do what he said he's going to do for us. The believer, does, he doesn't just fall asleep and do nothing. God was going to have faithful followers. He would make sure of it. He was not going to depend on us and the strength of our belief, but quite the opposite. We would come to learn to fully depend on God that he would get us to believe and have us be his. That's what's going on in this ancient covenant ceremony. God made these promises. His word is true. He's going to do all that he says. Now, that seems obvious. So then why does he make this covenant? Well, just think about us. Have you ever made a promise that you didn't keep? Have you broken promises before? What's the classic scene in movies that you kind of see? You're an overworking dad, he promises his kid, I'm gonna be at the game, I'm gonna be at, at your concert, and then he goes to work, emergency happens, gets engrossed in it, he misses the game, he misses the concert, broken promise. Now typically, you know, the child might be disappointed, he or she might um, feel like, okay, maybe God, dad's not that reliable or he doesn't care. But imagine if those broken promises kept happening. That would do some real damage. And isn't that how promises usually work? Easily made and just as easily broken. Why? Because there are no real binding consequences. And so when God makes this covenant based on his promises, he's not making it because he's not sure if he's going to come through with it. He's doing it for Abram's sake, to make sure that Abram knows that God will be faithful. And he's going to bind himself to Abram and to the consequences. Are we seeing how like the co covenant is different? More than just a promise. Promissory aspect to the covenant. Two parties agree, but there were consequences agreed upon as well. And God would be willing to disadvantage himself to convince Abram that he is going to be faithful to his promises. And not just that, God was certain of what he would do for Abram, but also he was certain of what he would get Abram to do in the covenant. Abraham would believe God, but there would be times when he would fail to believe God. But he would believe the covenant, that God will keep both parties' obligations and consequences and in that way, Abram's safe to keep believing in God. There was no other God like this. 
No other relationship like this. It almost sounds too good to be true. It seems like Abram could do anything. He could not care, not be worried, and he was still safe. Of course, however, that would not be a good faith effort on Abram's part. So to help Abram believe and continue to believe and his people to believe, God would make more covenants throughout history, teaching his people who he was, what God expected, how to be in a proper and right relationship with God. You see the different covenants that God made with his people um, in that diagram in the sermon outline. Three major covenants, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and then the new covenant. Now, the Mosaic covenant, I just want to mention briefly in the Mosaic covenant, that's where God gives Moses and the people the law. And the the significant thing there is that God redeemed his people from slavery. And so he was the new master. And he told them, obey me according to this good word. This word, this law is the secret to life. You live this way and you will live. You'll be blessed. And it really helps to know what God is like so his people would know how to image him. And if you fail to trust the law and obey it, there was a way of forgiveness through the sacrificial system. Blood sacrifices, lifeblood of an animal as a substitute for man's life. That meant that trusting and obeying God was deadly serious. But it also taught mankind that God was kind and patient. Israel could always turn back in repentance through the, the sacrifices. Next covenant, Davidic covenant, God's people would struggle to believe even though God said, I I am going to promise that you will have a king on the throne forever. God was always the king and master, but because the people um, struggled to believe, they needed a visible leader, and so God gave them one. And now the promises are being realized. Land, they're in Jerusalem, they're in the temple, they have a nation, they have blessing and protection under King David, but Israel keeps violating the covenant terms. God was bound to Abram and his descendants with the promises, even if Israel was a total mess. They exasperated God, but God would remain faithful and true to his word of promise. Why? because he secured it through the covenants. So how would God help Abraham's descendants to believe? He would reassure his people yet again with the new covenant prophecy through Jeremiah. And then, at one Passover feast, Jesus would take the cup of the meal, of the Seder meal, and he would say, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. What did he mean by this Passover cup containing the blood and that this was the blood of the covenant? Why does he even mention covenant? Well, the good news, the big news is that Jesus would fulfill all the promises of God that was first made to Abraham. Land, nation, blessing, and protection. Jesus would be the place where you meet with God. The new temple in the heavenly Jerusalem. Jesus would be the one in whom he would create a new humanity by faith union with him. You're spiritually united to him, and then you would be part of his, this new humanity. He would be the promised king and leader. 
He would be the offer of blessing and salvation to the whole world to be part of his kingdom and part of the new creation for eternity. All of the promises of God, they find their yes and amen in Christ. See, it's in Jesus that God came through on his word of promise. And as a result, there should not have been any death on his part, no consequences for Jesus. But as a human king, Jesus also, he represented not just God to man, but also man to God. See, God, Jesus was the leader of his people. And this is how he would get people to believe in God. Jesus represented man as man was supposed to be. See, Jesus did what man was supposed to be but couldn't, trusting the Father perfectly. He obeyed the law of God perfectly. He was the perfect son, the perfect man. Again, as a result, he did not deserve to die. So then why did he? Dying on the cross, he was taking the covenant consequences and curses meant for the fallen sinner who could not keep the terms and the obligations of the covenant. By faith in Jesus, who fulfilled the covenant terms for God and for man, we would be saved where God would no longer see us in our unrighteousness, but he would see Christ in his righteousness. That was salvation. That was our protection. That was us being brought into the life and body of Christ. I've just given you a whole lot of what salvation really means. It is far more than just believe and be saved. It's far more than just a fire insurance policy, right? The whole history of the Old Testament, from creation onwards, really, it's by way of covenant, mankind would learn how to have a proper relationship with God, their creator. And so we, the church, we are people defined by the new covenant fulfilled in Jesus, and that is our new identity. That's what it means to be a Christian, to be a part of community, to be part of a community where everyone believes th that the covenant works this way. So that, there you go. There's a covenant. Far more than just a promise. And so just lastly, I'm going to talk about some implications and then application. Okay? Implications and, and applications of what it means to believe in the new covenant. The implication is that it's all about grace through faith. Grace to get you to recognize how significant the covenant is, we're thinking about grace through faith. And the way to help us is by asking that question. Are God's promises conditional or unconditional? And related to that is this idea of God's unconditional love, right? Many people are drawn to that, this idea of God's unconditional love. But is love unconditional? The promises are unconditional. Is that really true? You might say yes and no, but conditions and unconditions, that's not the way to really think about God's love and his promises. But why is there even talk about God's unconditional love? The intention is good, where, you know, we don't want people to feel like they have to do something to earn God's love because we all know that we can't. Everyone feels guilty. We know that we can't do right by God, and so we can't win God's favor or his love, and that leaves us all in a hopeless state. And oftentimes, as a result, we stay away from God. What's the point? And so to invite people back, 
We speak of unconditional love, no fear, no rejection, just come back to God. As good as that is, without clarification, thinking of God's love as unconditional, that could lead people to misunderstand their relationship with God as if there were no strings attached, no obligations, no consequences, just love and blessing. And yet it goes against how God has established his relationship with his people for all throughout the whole Bible. And if you stop and think about it, let's just be real. How many of us would say, I love you, and you can do whatever you want to me? I mean, that doesn't make any sense. Why, we wouldn't do that. Why would we expect God to be like that? We can't treat him however we want. And this is the beauty of the covenant, okay? Instead, this is what it's really like. Everyone is guilty for not doing right by God. There was nothing that we could do to earn his favor and love. That put us all in a hopeless state. It could have kept us away from God, but instead of staying away, God did something to get us to believe him and to obey him and to be in a faithful and true and accurate covenant relationship. That's the new covenant. God's love, his promises, are they unconditional or conditional? It's not about that. The phrase that we ought to remember, that we need to learn, is grace through faith. Grace through faith. First, it's all about God's grace. Undeserved kindness, and that's, that's more accurate than unconditional love because grace, it means you, it's undeserving kindness, meaning we did not deserve it because of our sin. We were accountable to God in the covenant terms. We failed to keep them, so we ought to deserve consequences, which are fair and right. But God would give us blessing and favor instead, undeservedly so. I'm going to turn to our first reading um, in Ephesians 2, Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. I've been gently encouraging us to think about this passage, Ephesians 2, verse 1. What does it say? And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's a pretty sorry state, hard to hear, but what did God do? Verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That right there is language of the new covenant. All that Jesus did, all that he did right, um, all that he did that was right, he was rewarded for. And that's what happens to us believers as well. We're seated with Christ. And it's because Jesus took the covenant consequences on our behalf so that we would not face them. We call this the gospel, the good news. And it's in the security of that kind of understanding of our relationship with God that we do not fear condemnation or rejection anymore as we try to live out our faith and obedience and as we struggle to. Grace was never a license to be free from God or free from the terms and obligations of the covenant but grace was the ability to live out our obligations and commands of God without fear of condemnation. That's how God gets his believers to obey, by giving us that kind of security and assurance. 
And that is what we're believing, faith. It's grace through faith. We're believing in the grace of the new covenant. All that God did for us in Jesus, fulfilling the promises and the consequences. Faith is not that I believe, it's what I believe. I'm believing in the new covenant fulfilled by Jesus. That's me saying I can't believe perfectly on my own, but I need God's help to believe and obey, and he has made a way for me in Jesus. Remember the covenant with Abram. Abraham would believe God, and when he failed to believe, what, did it, what happened? He wasn't lost. He wasn't cut off. He believed the covenant, that God would keep both parties' obligations and consequences. That's Ephesians 2.8.9. Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast making it very clear that we can be saved and we can access that salvation by faith, knowing what Jesus did for us. And Paul would say this because he knows the, the sinful human condition. The reality is, is if I'm trying to live out my faith and I'm trying to believe really hard on my own, my own effort or my own performance, you know, I'm going to become proud when I do well. And I'm going to boast. And when I don't do well, then I'm going to get depressed and I'm going to shrink back. That's what we're really like. And we'll see how that plays out later on. But true faith is me believing. I can't believe on my own, so God helps me to believe. He gives me faith. And how I know I'm exercising this faith is because now I'm saying, I believe. I believe in Jesus. I believe I need to obey. I want to obey, and I can and will obey with Jesus' help. That's our lives as Christians. Verse 10, Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The new covenant promises and salvation, living by God's terms, grace through faith in Christ. There's our implication. That's the, the beauty and the power of new covenant salvation. So just to end, application-wise, it's all about our identity and our performance, being assured of who we are and being able to serve out of that assurance. Here is the application that I want to leave us all with. Build your identity on the new covenant in Christ. Build your identity on the new covenant in Christ. Because this is not an understatement. All of, all of existence, all of meaning in life would be about what God the creator, he accomplished in creating us and then also in remaking us. Build your identity on this new covenant in Christ. What might that look like? Let me just mention work and then worship. Work. If you've ever worked or... Um, let's say you had a project deadline, you worked hard to meet it, you submitted the project, and then your supervisor came back to you and said, that job was substandard, unacceptable, and your place with the company is in question. I mean, if you have any dignity <laughs> to hear something like that, that should rock you to the core, right? I've never had anything like that, or I don't remember if I had anything like that. Maybe I'm just putting something like that out of my mind. 
No, no. Maybe you've never messed up that badly, but maybe you have been in a situation at work where questions were raised, where for whatever reason you're starting to think to yourself, oh, what's going to happen with my job? Am I going to get fired? How does my manager think of me? Is my place secure here? Those questions might arise, and you know that your work is so important to your survival that it really gets you worked up. If you're ever in a position like that, what would you say to yourself to help yourself? What would you say to yourself? See, not many things get us to wonder about our identity and our worth as effectively as a negative critique from your work performance, right? Our identity and our performance is so tightly linked. What would you say to yourself? Believer, you need to tell yourself that you are secure in Christ who fulfilled the new covenant promises for you, for us to be with God. That's the difference between a believer and a non-believer. That, and that makes a world of difference for salvation, but for all of life. This is what we're trying to build our identity on. Not my performance that I can boast in, not in my good works that define me. I need to think about this more and build on this and get back to you, and maybe it'll get you stimulated to think about it as well, but how we approach God wrongly through my works and my boasting, that's how we could also approach our work which is then how our identities are affected. All based on my performance. But by faith, the living the life with God, we have no greater assurance and security for anything in life but Jesus and his performance in securing the new covenant for us. And that applies to all of life. So if my world is rocked by a bad performance review at work, I feel my job and my livelihood is at risk. I need to know that I'm still secure in Christ, that he will care for me and see me through this ordeal. I may fail people, I may fail companies, but God will never fail me. He's got good works for, planned for me, whether it's at work or through the church, but God's going to work through me because he values me. He has saved me. And then just lastly, that's work, and that's really driving home our new covenant identity. And so with that, just worship. What we're doing here right now, each and every Sunday, we are building our identity in Christ, being reminded through every aspect and element and part of this liturgy. This is all about the gospel of grace at work in us. We're called by God. Everyone else, they're sleeping in. They're doing their own thing. But God calls us. We hear, and we respond, and we come out, and we worship God. When we come out and we worship God, we're aware of our sin, and so we confess. We have the opportunity to come before God and seek his forgiveness and restoration. And then as a result, I want to be changed, and I want to grow, and I do that through prayer and hearing his word so that we can live out the covenant terms. And we're empowered to believe and carry on through the Lord's Supper. We go out praising the Lord, blessing our ascended king who blesses us. That whole movement of the worship service that we go through each and every week that is forming our spiritual identity, impressing and embedding in us gospel grace. Now, we'll have opportunities to 
live that out as a church community more, not this, not this Sunday, not at, at today's lunch, but in the future lunches. We have an opportunity to embrace our new identity. And how you know you're going to embrace that identity is when you can be vulnerable with one another, when you can share your life with one another, where you're so secure in Christ that you're not worried about how people are going to see me or judge me. But together, we're all in the same boat, all at the foot of the cross, living this new covenant community life out together. That's what's going to happen and what we need to see happen as a church here where we believe these marks of Christ and we actually experience it together. We're training ourselves to be this new covenant community. It's such a radical way to live and let's pray that it happens. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word to us. We do pray that it would be light that shines out of darkness. We pray that it would be this word that refreshes the soul. We pray that this word 